Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Keeper Mark, and with me tonight are Jen. Good evening. And Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be one of those what? nights. <laughs> tonight, The Face in the Frost by John Belairs. Jen, do you want to introduce us to this? Prospero, a tall, skinny misfit of a wizard, lives in the South Kingdom, a patchwork of feuding duchies and small manors, all loosely loyal to one figurehead king. Along with his necromancer friend Roger Bacon, who has been on a quest to find a mysterious book, Prospero must flee his home to escape ominous pursuers. Thus begins an adventure that will lead him to a grove where his old rival, Melicus, is falsely rumored to be buried to a less-than-hospitable inn in the town of Five Dials, and ultimately into a dangerous battle with origins and a magical glass paperweight. <laughs> so I will say right off the bat that this one really tickled me. I like the story. I think the pairing of humor and horror worked really well. And I think it, it had a lot of vibes of later authors like Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. But, you know, a lot of that sort of tinged with really sort of a horror novel in a lot of ways, the way it's presented as far as right. his madness. And I thought it was a really, really good book for me. I saw a touch of Zelazny style to it as well. I can see that. Yeah. Especially within like the mirror and some of the silly lines. The I have it on the authority of a talking fish that... <laughs> <laughs> That's in my notes as well. <laughs> For me, I thought this felt like it could be dropped right into the world of Roger Corman's movie, The Raven. It had oh, that kind yeah. of absurdity yet underlying darkness running through it. Yeah, that was what really got my attention was at the beginning, it's a very light story. You have Prospero and Roger Bacon, which are very familiar sort of literary names that sort of draw your attention. But his whole house is a sort of clockwork Rube Goldberg uh, I museum love the piece. House. Oh my god! <laughs> like the water clock with a firing cannon <laughs> yeah. that launched, that fired the the little miniature cannonballs into the brass head. Yeah, that was awesome. And it's very presented, very sort of eclectic and this is the wizard who fuddles around and is very aged but also has a sense of wisdom about him but then it becomes into a haunt the story in the background is a yeah. is a very classic haunt story and it's done well i think in terms of the mood shifts it's not trying to be overly horror it's not trying to be overly light it's just it's great at shifting the moods when it needs to I'm actually kind of surprised that it hasn't been adapted for television, for example. it's It's got such a great feel, and the storytelling is so visual that 
it, I, I think that it would have easily been adapted if perhaps it was better known. But yeah, when it comes to horror, there's Lovecraft references peppered throughout it, talking about essential salts and the Black Planet Yuggoth. There's a, that undercurrent. You start reading this and, oh, this is kind of cute and this house is kind of fun. But you get this foreshadowing of the darkness to come through some of the references that are made. Mm -hmm. Right. There was that necromantic section of Prospero's spellbook, which throughout all of these years had been previously unused, and he had to study it before going to sleep for the night to prep for the next day, and that gave him nightmares. And there was a scene in that nightmare that I was like, I might be done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and his studying the book of spells at night before he might need them is quite possibly the origination of how D&D magic users study their spells. It's the counterpoint to the Vancian release is sort of the Bel Air study. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. He even mentions there's no time to go riffing through the book. Better pull something that I have in my brain now. And mm-hmm. at one point, the target can resist and he'll want to. So, yeah, there's some obvious inspirations there for the magic systems that we see, I think, throughout OSR and gaming in general there. Well, there's also this pervasiveness of magical artifacts that both of the wizards carry. Not all their power is tied up in their spells. There's a lot of that's imbued in their staffs, the staff that can bar a door just by leaning on it, which is like is a really cool idea, or the fact that they carry these little trinkets and things like that. That feels very dungeon master guide to me (laughs) how about the miniature ship the miniature ship was great it's like it's how are we gonna get there well i have this miniature ship and uh we just need to make ourselves shrinking (laughs) it had like wine in the carafes the guns fired there was oil in the lanterns and just this tiny little ship i was that was so cool they had little books inside it, you know, that, that were pertinent yeah, to the needs that they had as well, which is a great in- integration. I did really dig yeah. the multiple titles of books given throughout the entire story. Oh, and yeah. I will get into that later, but I really want to <laughs> build on those. Well, then there was the scene in the card player at the inn. Talk about a creepy scene. That was nightmarish quality right there. Reading through that, I think I've had this nightmare where I'm going to doors that aren't doors and I'm talking to people that aren't people. That was really, really a disturbing scene and so well written. Made me curious into a little bit about his other works. And apparently this is one of his only, I guess, non-youth-oriented novels. Well, he did like a series with a paranormal investigator of some sort, including he was working on two more in that series when he passed. Mm, okay. But not having read those, they might be more light. But if you look at what was considered youth-oriented for the time, half of the stuff from Heinlein that was considered youth books when originally published are now just in the adult sci-fi fantasy section. So mm, it's kind of right. hard to tell. Yeah, I, th- I thought yeah. this one did read a little bit fairy tale like in the telling with things that, oh, the, the things that bothered me the most were the... And there it stands to this day... Outside of the dialogue, it's just part of the narrative. So I'm like, okay, guys, pick a tense. <laughs> but well, it, right, it, it, it was very fairy tale. So speaketh the editor. No, <laughs> please. <laughs> but other than that, I, I would say no because of that. I think it was very fairy tale like in the way it was presented. But I actually thought. The beginning, the long history lesson at the beginning, mm, that's actually a little unfriendly to the younger set or those with a shorter attention span. 
there was a point that I drew out of that when I got the sense of, you know, the, the same jostling of the tense changes. You know, there's a lot of references to, well, the time this story is told, et cetera, right? Where they are, the narrator or the tense is sort of leaping forward into a present day mm-hmm. and looking yeah. back. But to me, the the kind of intriguing thing about that was that both Prospero and, and Roger Bacon and, and maybe Wizardry in general in this world, they have a timeless sense about them because they have the ability to see into that future or see into the past through these artifacts. Like you he's know, watching a 1943 Cubs game. Right, exactly. With the Cubs down by 16. It's, oh, it's okay. a versatility of the time that okay. is presented <laughs> as part of the magical abilities there. And so I thought it was, it is that fairy tale sense and and you know I wanted it to be a little bit more explicitly integrated but at the same time like he is sort of this out of world he's chosen to to be in this time in a way because he's he can view the future through his magic mirror you know Roger Bacon can travel to England right for all intents and purposes or what passes as England and they so they sort of travel between worlds and between times to a certain extent and it and it lends itself to this time being meaningless to a magician of certain power and I like that concept and it's not something that okay. I've seen as well presented in other novels as as a, it's just sort of accepted in this one and I think I'll buy that it then <laughs> you can see echoes of Prospero in Pratchett's Rincewind Granted, Rincewind is mm-hmm. you know, a lot more cowardly, but there's sort of that same laissez-faire vibe kind of runs through until it's all business. And uh, yeah, this I really, really enjoyed this. This was just a great choice. I'm certainly going to be reading more John Belair's. One of my favorite lines was, I think, from the last chapter. Not sure who or what I defeated. Neither am I, but I'll tell you <laughs> what happened. We fought for a solid hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah the ending is a little bit it, it kind of gets into that abruptness we've talked about in some of the, the other novels it's not quite that he's it seems like he ran out of steam and he just wanted to quickly come to the conclusion of the ending but it's not a completely satisfying ending for those who want to know exactly what happened it's sort of presented many months or weeks afterwards that the survivors are gathering for a very happy occasion, you know, a very nice party that's sort of in this, uh, you know, Faustian sort of mode. And they don't quite go through the details of the explanation, you know, in terms of everything that happened. But it kind of goes back to the, I mean, almost like Tristam Shandyish sort of vibe of gentlemen wizards meeting and having a good tale to tell from now on. Nice. It It has a good conclusion, I guess. Uh, yeah. But just not not necessarily a detailed one, which is different than I think how I felt about possibly like Jack of Shadows, for example. Uh-huh. <laughs> not to bring I'm up, not to dig up the past. Yeah. You know, when I said I had it had a Zelazny feel to me, I was actually referring to a night in a lonesome October. So oh, okay. <laughs> just putting that which out. I there. can certainly see that comparison. <laughs> totally see that. <laughs> the other thing that was really neat to see was how there was sort of these quaint approaches to magic, very folklorish aspects that the people of the lands had within them of sort of power just to put hexes on windows or to fend off some of the the evils that were happening or the curse itself, you know, the the fact that they laid this curse that pervaded the forest. But you're right, the classic hex signs, I thought that was a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. And it, it made me think a lot about you know, how to integrate that into a game setting and, and obviously sort of the, the echoes within some of the DCC modules and adventures where that is a little bit more prominent. Well, then let's roll into things to stat. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's talk about that. Well, then, Bob, go ahead. 
you know, looking at things, I hadn't even thought about the hex signs and the like. I'm kind of ashamed because now that you mentioned it, I mean, I love when we drive cross country to Gen Con and we're passing barns with hex signs. I always think that's really cool. But the first thing that leapt to my mind was the Hand of Glory. Of course. Because it's it's such a wonderful item. I'm fairly certain someone has statted one in a, a third-party product somewhere. Probably based on Todd McGowan's icon on G+, which was the lo- I don't like rem- the giant ebony Hand of Glory. Well... <laughs> I, I seem to remember like two episodes ago, I was, I was mentioning it, but it's not, it's not springing to my mind at the moment. But there was that. The Hand of Glory is always kind of a fun thing you can play with. They mentioned the seven runic alphabets. Well, DCC only has, uh, what, two? Two, Mortal and Spay, right? So there's still five more runic alphabets. And that's a fun, versatile spell because of all the things it can do. So that might be fun to play with. And Krakenhammer of Stefan Schimpf, the mod cobbler of mans. <laughs> I, I gotta do this guy. I've gotta do something. With this. I mean, oh my God. And that was one of the titles. Yes. Well, yes. Yes, it was. And, you know, he's supposed to be this dark, evil you know, mage and uh, yeah, the Mad Cobbler. I love this. I must do something with the Mad Cobbler. I, those were the three. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in this that was certainly statable, but those were the things that really leapt off the page at me for statting. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of, of doing some sort of evil tinker wizard. And, and let's hmm. face it, we know what he was at zero level. He was a cobbler before he became a wizard. Well, that's <laughs> so DCC. <laughs> yep. Armed with his mighty shoehorn. <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot of damage with the shoehorn. Yeah. What about you, Jen? Well, so some of those books, we had titles given to us like the Aristotelus opera or the mysterium cosmographicum or simply an answer for night hags <laughs> and you know i would love to at least get descriptions of these books what they look like on the outside so you could add them to a wizard's library just as oh yeah you know, theming really even maybe include some spell seeds like what kind of spells you might find in there There's the mirror, of course. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that yeah, that's a fun mirror. (laughs) Really, is a character unto itself. I liked at the end. It asked them to carry it downstairs so that it could be present at the dinner table, and that's just gives it that much more personality. And then it falls. (laughs) And then it falls asleep and snores. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I like the idea of the corruption effects for merely preparing necromantic spells, Mm -hmm. because as I mentioned before, after preparing a necromantic spell, he goes to sleep and has nightmares and some pretty effective nightmares at that. So clearly there's the price to be paid for merely preparing them. And I think that there was a scene where as part of that curse, the pulse of the fire matched Prospero's heartbeat. And he suspected Mm -hmm. that the spell had been cast with the phrase, when the fire dies, let him die too. And I think that would be a great curse or harmful spell for an NPC as opposed to your typical monsters or your big bads. Add it to one of the NPC types in the men and magicians category. Well, that and they say in, in DCC, villains don't have to follow the rules. So you could certainly have that sort of manifestation going on with the spell. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I really dug that. Mm-hmm. I really dug that. So that's me. Oh, and uh, nameless horrors and what to do about them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Roman well, building- divination. Really? <laughs> 
<laughs> Building off of that scene where the horror is tied to him in some way with a fire. At the end of the scene, there was something really intriguing that Prospero does. I think it's, it's stated like he shouts a word that sorcerers can only speak a few times in their lives. And that concept really made me think of, well, you could definitely make a table out of a permanent burn of stats that makes... Uh, gets, oh, a, yeah. gets the, uh, a wizard a sort of a dying breath or penultimate dying breath before they actually die. They they can basically do this. And it maybe it's a limited time thing where they only have a few numbers of these that they can use. But it's a very intriguing concept. And I, I love that that was his solution. You know, it was such an imminent feeling of death for him that he had to resort to that. Wow. Kind of like wow. a soul burn. Exactly. Yeah. Ooh, something that yeah. It's just marks, you only have a few of these, but when you use them, they are potent and you definitely have to reserve them for those occasions. Okay. And this coming from the authors. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, why you guys do what you do. How race you to include it, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the um the whole well I think we could both take a different take on this again. You know, it's, oh, yeah. it's one of those things that you could you could adapt in many ways and and really come up with a unique view or voice on it. Another thing that came to me is that if you want a way of showing a player or introducing ritual magic into your campaign, read the section on the graveyard in the forest because it's just filled with, you know, the preparations, the sort of agony or fear and you know the circle with sand and circles within circles. And I just really thought it was done well. And I think you could go a long ways towards enhancing yeah. ritual preparation. And we've talked about this before, but I think this is yet another example. Obviously, you can draw on this to inspire players and um, bring something more to the table with ritual magic. Blast it, Mark. All your stuff is better than mine. <laughs> no, because I'm like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. I'm like, oh, I was going to do that. But now I want to do that because Mark went that. Blast it. There's like one of the servants that he goes and visits, I think, King Grom, I think is the, the king yeah. that he goes. And it's just another character in this book full of characters. But he's an NPC that speaks in Anglo-Saxon verse. And it's a very dour sort of NPC. And I just love that concept. I think he would be a great NPC to stat and sort of bring to a table and have your players just befuddled, you know. For, well, and for, what about the king himself and the king. in his tower with the universe that he created? Oh, yeah, no, that's such a, it's like his model train of of magic. Yeah, that was creepy. And it didn't really talk about this very much in the intro section, but the idea of magic as being much more of a practical sort of, well, like Jen said, I talked to a fish and I have it on his word that this leads to the end of a tunnel. Well, that's a way of using magic that's much more practical, much more mundane in the sense of magic is pervasive because... Well, you can call upon these little tricks. And I love that idea of a setting. You know, magic is not necessarily reserved for the high and, and mightiest of, of castings. It's a utility for tinkering. And I think, Bob, you mentioned that, you know, the kind of the tinkerer wizard. I'd love to see some sort of class, you know, that expands on that, where this wizard is not necessarily so much about pulling the strings of phlogiston and possibly getting the backlash. It's really about the cantrips and the little spells that help him you know, gain information and knowledge. And, and I, I like that aspect a lot. And I think you could you could really expand on a class by just getting a few of the examples of what Prospero does to make magic much more routine in his life. And how you'd handle that in a system where in DCC where magic has a very wild aspect, you'd have to find some way of evoking, you know, the right Pretty balance magic. there. Petty ma yeah, petty magic, but in a way that really allows for the type of solutions that Prosper comes up with to some of these situations, which I, I think is just, you know, really fun to do. Like speak with animal up to half a hit die? 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> also, you know, keep in mind that they they even directly reference another very powerful literary wizard who did things like just creating fireworks. There is literally a Gandalf joke in the book. <laughs> right. You know, you're a wizard that can't ride a horse? Oh my God, what sort of figure do you cut? Yeah. And again, you know, Gandalf would do a lot of little things, but was still very powerful. And so, yeah, I like the idea of, of petty magics. Mm-hmm. I think that could be fun. Yeah. There was a, another thing that was really neat, I think, that I'd like to figure out a way of making into a spell, but the idea that Prospero's house was designed by the former wizard, like his tutor or teacher that was uh, named Michael Scott. But one of the things that made the house so potent was the the keystone that was laid within the house. And the idea that you can have this sort of artifact or magical uh, imbuing of the stone that sort of pulls the, you know, the protective measure about the house forever. I like that idea too. And I think you could make a kind of neat spell or neat. Yeah. Uh, neat what makes a wizard's tower special? What makes a wizard's home special? It's not the, the construction of the tower or the home. It's the keystone. Yeah, and, and, and how you could possibly exploit that if you were a band of adventurers and you happen to know, okay, well, we went on a quest and we found, you know, information about this particular wizard's keystone and we have a way of bypassing it, but it'll be dangerous sort of thing. So That'll actually come into play a little bit later on in our discussions. <laughs> and, and <laughs> yes, it will. It's not necessarily something that you'll find in the wizard's sanctum. It's somewhere within the lodestones of the house, yeah. Yeah, Bob and Jen, I think you guys just echoed this. There's so many things in this book. There, you know, like the insects that are maple leaves, but they suck oh, your blood. Those are so creepy. I think I think I'd love to stat that up in the the same vein as vampire weeds that you know some of the characters in in the Dying Earth you know face. You know, all these things you know where where nature is sort of disguised and turns a little bit deadly. Those are great things that you can throw on players and especially to creep them out a little. You know, oh yeah. So. So essentially what you're saying is that we need to get someone to write the 200-page adventure of this book. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Not it. (laughs) The book wasn't 200 pages. Why does the adventure have to be 200 pages? Stat Stat blocks. blocks? Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And spells. Come on. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, uh, there's so much. You know, you could dive into that and, and really expand on it for 200 pages, like you said. So, huh. oh, the tarot cards. Oh, more tarot cards. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Speaking of props, I think it'd be kind of cool just to dive into old-fashioned, quote-unquote, old man ephemera. I mean, get the snuff boxes, get the pipes, just the little pocket full of stuff. Yeah. Like every grandpa used to have just this bowl of neat crap. Handkerchief, lighter, (laughs) mints, bits of glass. Do not confuse with mints. Pretty much. I was actually thinking of something along the lines of green glass shards because Mm. we'll never be able to actually, you know, find a paperweight with the four green glass globes inside it but even just something as simple as beach glass yeah get something that's got a nice clear feel to it and any triangular stones or a stone-like surface with faces painted on them and any of those those little things that can just be passed around nonchalantly to your players that's pretty much where my mind is with this one Hmm, how about you mark i thought you know, the kind of thing that leapt to my mind is a ship in the bottle would be just a, a wonderful, <laughs> you know, the thing to have again. at the table. Yeah, yeah the, because it, the ship was so detailed and, and you can kind of play around with the concept of that 
mode of travel or you know just just as a way of getting the detail to blossom in the player's mind and you could do something similar with another way that the wizards transported themselves which was picking up an overripe tomato and making it into a red leather sack of a purse of a carriage right and oh and find a gourd you could have like just objects like that that how you tie that into the table in terms of like mechanically is is i think what i'd like to explore a little bit more but those kind of things like those kind of props that if you're running a adventure that has some sort of components of well we are transforming what is around us you know the materials that we have around us into what becomes the magic you're sort of having to have the players find those objects and describe what they're doing with them a little bit more which i I think is kind of a fun concept And, and it kind of goes back to what Prospero and Roger Bacon were doing when, well, I have this ship and I'm, we're going to shrink ourselves and put ourselves on it. And, you know, we found this, uh, this tomato. Well, that didn't work. Let's go find, you know, a, a gourd. You know? Well, and, and now it, you're talking about the tomato springs to mind. They, they have those, uh, pin cushions that are tomatoes. Uh, and you palms, can, you yeah. can just stick wheels on one if you use miniatures and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and just let a little the stuffing out so it's kind of lopsided and there's your carriage. Yeah, and you could you could stat up something like that where it's you know it's, it's got different effects based on what type of fruit base it is or, or vegetable base it and is. how healthy so, it is. Yeah, how healthy mm. it is. Yeah. So I, I like that kind of stuff, and that's what came to mind. I think that there's all these other props, you know, in terms of things that you mentioned, Jen, that make it look like that old the house of just oddities, right? And and maybe there's a particular artifact when you're digging through that pile of old man's or grandfather's trinkets, right? But it, they have to discover what it is, sort of like Prospero has to discover at the very end something that he didn't know was going to be useful 50 years ago, but it turned out to be the, the kind of the key thing to halt the haunt that he was uh, suffering. So what about you, Bob? Well, right off the bat, since Jen was mentioning old man ephemera, I had been thinking of an old carpet bag filled with doodads. So uh, that, <laughs> we were kind of on the on the same thing there, you know, a tobacco tin, a snuff bottle. Yeah, make it a Gladstone bag, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had, like, he had the wizard equivalent of fidget spinners in there. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, with the boat, the boat is actually kind of timely to today's entertainment because, of course, with the Ant-Man movies and people getting used to things getting small and, and getting big, and that, that's certainly a visual that you can bring to your table that people are going to grasp right away. I came across a Hand of Glory candle that is so perfectly detailed, it's down to, like, the hairs and pores on on the hands. Yeah. And it's a beeswax candle, and it is gorgeous. And let me tell you, if you put that at your table and light those tapers, you're going to freak out your players. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you bring that Mulch. in the house, I'm going to be freaked out. <laughs> no, it's a hand of glory. You will be asleep. Uh, <laughs> mulch, because so many times when he'd attack his foes and they would crumble away into bits of detritus, I just kind of kind of saw that as as mulch or you know mulch and loam, but kind of that that earthy crud collection tarot cards oh my god there's there's so many loads of cool decks available online and you know his use of the tarot cards he's laying them out to destroy the bridge and placing them in the center and then looking for the spell that's holding the bridge together despite his magics you could so find a really cool tarot deck that looks nothing like a traditional deck at all that the players would absolutely love yeah you could even come up with almost like its own spell system that's hinted at in the book and what are the solutions to make this spell go off that like like it's evidence of the book he has to place 
you know, certain tarot cards at the four corners and place one in the center, but he's sort of guessing, right? And that would be kind of a cool thing for players to have to do at mm-hmm. the table as well. Good puzzle. He's doing it on based on the interpretation of the cards. And I used to do something similar in a D&D game long, long time ago. We'll just say a long, long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I went diceless for a while. And instead, I used runestones. Oh, and wow. And so rather than rolling a die, you draw a rune. And then based on whether the rune was upright or reversed, you would then interpret that rune in the light of the action you were attempting. And huh. so just just taking that idea one step further into spell casting, you're interpreting, you know, I'm looking for these cards because these cards this way mean these sorts of things. And I'm hoping that this is going to work oh i get it jury rigged magic it's Mm -hmm. pretty esoteric a lot like mysterium then where you're staring at these cards and saying i hope this is what this is supposed to mean yes although tarot cards actually have more structured meanings than the ephemera (laughs) of mysterium (laughs) which is clue for surrealists yes music wise you know right off the bat i looked for but i could not find gregorian chants played on bagpipes i was very disappointed that i could not find gregorian chants played on bagpipes. i saw your note (laughs) so i looked as well and all i could find were a couple of music festivals that were going to have such things yeah could not so frustrating (laughs) the only real song that that sprang to mind was you know mentioned by name which is to uh, Anacreon in Heaven, which is essentially the tune to the uh, Star-Spangled Banner. And uh, I thought that was kind of a neat reference that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, this thing falls and it's playing this. And beyond that, it's, for me, the feel is still kind of the Roger Corman Raven. It's a lot of harpsichord and things of that nature. This entire story has that sort of feel for me. Mm -hmm. It's good. So now what about inspirations, Mark? So I talked about this a little bit before, but one of the big inspirations that I thought of was Shutter Mountains and campaigns set mm. in in that location. And, the, and that goes through the box set of the Chain Coffin with all the, the other adventures that are based in that area, but also the Compendium and the Almanac that are included in the box set, which are great right. inspirations for that sort of folk magic and just launching points because it's not like there's a whole section on here are a hundred curses. It's here are things that you can do to inspire curse creation or curses in this setting. And here are some of the folk magics that are invoked for hexes or evil oh, eyes. Oh, oh. But um, there, and I forget the title of the book. It's like our something friend. It's the book that uh, Silver John references a couple times being one of the inspirations for shutter mountains and it's a oh, yeah. real book jen's got a copy okay yeah 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 no I, I, I see what you mean though <laughs> but I, I i see what you mean though in, in pulling in those inspirations and the folk magic mm-hmm. yeah nicely done something that came to me when you were talking jen about the names of the different books I remembered in last year's Gong Farmer's Arm Almanac, there was an entry from Sergeant Dave who put together maybe a hundred book titles that you can find in a wizard's library with some okay. some ancillary effects in a few cases where you might you might be able to find spells or it was a cursed book, you know. So you it's a bit like a D100 table with these great names, sort of echoing what Prospero uses in his case. But that's a good resource for just coming up with a library that you encounter and 
you know, I pull a random book off the shelf. What is it? So he, he detailed a lot of that out in The Last Kong Farmer's Almanac, which I think was pretty cool. Nice. Uh, worth, worth checking out. You know, besides that and the, the feature, I didn't pull in a lot of other DCC adventures, but I'm interested to hear what you have, Bob and Jen. Well, for me, I think kind of inspiring and especially for reskinning would be something like The Emerald Enchanter and The Emerald Enchanter Strikes Back. Mm. You've got that buildup of the, the evil wizard and if you're running it with a small group as opposed to like a party of four or six, run it for one or two or maybe three at most. Darken the feeling, you know, it's no longer bright Oz-like emerald green, everything is dark and rather than going through essentially his fortress or his home, that's easy enough to reskin to exterior locations as you're searching and you can just make that dark and creepy and wonderful and really capture, I think, the feel of their quest in this one. I think that's that's another one that you echoed in The Raven as well as being very setting appropriate for this and for that movie. Yeah. And the other thing that really springs to mind, because it is something that I was reminded of at GaryCon, is that DCC flat out says a spellbook doesn't have to be a spellbook. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and well, yeah, at Gary Khan, it was a it was an insane, chaotic Jack in the Box that whispered spells in a person's ears. At, at a <laughs> My poor falcon of holding. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I mean, I don't know if I was alone in picturing the mysterious book as the Voynich manuscript, mm. because to me, it had that sort of vibe, and so this spell book. It's not something that you just sit and learn a spell. It's you're trying to decipher it is empowering the book so that the book can carry out its own ends. And that is hugely inspiring. And that is very DCC. I don't know as a judge if I will ever again have a, a wizard at my table that just has a book. Hmm. Or just spells prepared out of thin air. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's just there's so many cool things. And this really did kind of inspire me further. And of course, getting back to the Emerald Enchanter, the Emerald Enchanter strikes back. While you've got the Emerald Enchanter, you beat him. Now he's got the Voynich manuscript. Now he's pissed <laughs> and he's coming for you. The Emerald Enchanter strikes back. And again, you can kind of carry these overland themes and you can do so much with just those two. I mean, sure, there's potential with like the 998th Wizards Conclave for just meetings of wizards and things like that. But I I think for me, those two specifically really hit the mark. Yeah, that's that's a good call. And I think there's even some parallels that there's built in like to the work itself, because I think it's talked about that there's plants and herbicultural diagrams that are part of the manuscript. That yeah, are it's read. very, it seemed very Voynich manuscript. Right. Very excellent. Yeah. And so anybody who has played in or run the Tower Out of Time, you see why I'm listing that here because of the plants and the, shall we say, inhabitants and everything just being a little bit off, whether off in the sense of the time that they've come from or the place or yeah it, it's and especially having played it skinned <laughs> it's super versatile so you can have plants from whenever or wherever you can have whatever you want running among them on that bottom floor it doesn't have to be the critters that are described in the book they can be 
whatever the judge wants to throw at you. Exactly. Even up to the big bad at the end of the adventure that you run into. Yeah, he he might be a wizard. He might be just a lost explorer. And it really has so much potential in there. And with all of the little bits and doodads and everything, that one really struck me. Just like Neon Knights, Mm. which is a fairly new adventure out there. But there are so many things to be found that, you know, I'm I'm not so sure that... Roger and Prospero hadn't already been here. And (laughs) (laughs) the more I thought about this and actually did read over some of the story after listening to it, it strikes me as a prequel to shall we say, a light-hearted Enter the Dagon. (laughs) Light-hearted Enter the Dagon. Yeah, well, another... Balloons while I eat your soul. Another (laughs) meeting of wizards of a sort, but maybe the aisle isn't quite as deadly. Maybe it's a little bit more uh, Roger Corman-esque. And that way, you just have to reskin a little bit of it, but all of the potential for spell duel, yeah, I, I could actually really dig on doing something with those okay very cool that brings us to our dcc feature for the show dcc number 73 a miracle was framed by michael curtis the mad wizard a miracle is terrifying the city striking without reason and sending his winged apes to slaughter the populace the famous archmage has gone too far now a coffer of jewels is offered to those who would dare defeat him the ever-changing walls of his shifting tower are guarded by a host of diabolical traps fiendish guardians and unimaginable terror will your adventurers come out victorious or lose their very souls in the attempt i love this adventure thank you for choosing it because it gave me an excuse to read it since jen's have to run it for me <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun one and it's a double crossing sort of a parallel to you know what the book right? is about so. well i first of all you've got a great example of a wizard's tower and oh you gosh. even get that cornerstone that keystone feel as part of this adventure you know there, there's talk about what holds this entire thing together is central and so that's really a, a neat parallel right there and if that was the only connection we could have stopped and it would have been great but this this goes <laughs> on <laughs> Anytime you've got a warring wizard with player pawns, you're going to have fun. And just the potential for spell dueling in this adventure is so fantastic. There's so many cool opportunities. There's neat little uh, like combat mechanics. And I am really kind of bummed that I never got to play this because it's just filled with so many neat touches to really drive things forward. And it kind of serves as a reminder that Michael Curtis is not afraid to make up a mechanic where where none exists so that his adventure will go smoothly. <laughs> Probably one of the ones that you consider a classic, one of the original classics of DCC. And hopefully it sees more play at events like Gen Con, where they're really trying to promote replaying a lot of the original adventures, introductory adventures. This is one of those that I never got a chance to play because I came to DCC after sort of this initial wave of early adventures were published. But it was right on the cusp. And, you know, it was was an example of... I think Michael Curtis sort of expanding on what you could do with a higher level adventure. It is a level four adventure. So there is some depth of play for each of the classes. Yeah. You have a little bit more material to work with in the, in the veterans. You know, if your campaign has been playing through some of the earlier, starting with sailors, then by the time they get to this adventure, they are experienced players and you have that sort of opportunity to introduce new mechanics. And, and one of the things that he does, which is fairly unique, I think in terms of Goodman games, 
game's official publications is that he writes in a new spell, for example, you know, which is without a patron, without a patron. It's just a new wizard spell that's not listed in the core book. You're right. I I think that's very unique. It is. And and I I was trying to do a a literature search of the other modules to see if there's really anything similar to it. And and it's I don't think there is another new spell for a wizard that is not a patron spell. There is another cleric spell. And again, it was Michael Curtis writing that cleric spell. But I think this is the only one that I've been able to find. And Mm. that is intriguing just from a, you know, if you are an omnivore judge, and you want to offer something to your players, that's a bit beyond what they think or what they expect. It's like, uh, you found this and it is intriguing and it's a ready-made spell for you that you don't have to write up. And of course, you know, there's been a third part explosion in, in spells and things like that. But this is great that it's coming from a source that's an official Goodman Games publication that you know, lends itself to easy integration with the rule set and the setting. And I have to wonder if it's in the Crawler's Companion. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Certainly, it's it, when I came across it, and and I don't think I chose the adventure based on that. But when I was reading the adventure, I saw it. I was like, "Wow, a light bulb went off." You know, that's that's something that's oh, yeah, right. you know, that's worth calling out. Now, in my defense, much like the book we just read, every time I read this module or picked it up and started skimming through to see if it was something I was going to weave into the existing campaign story, it kept reading as kind of a dark fantasy. And I think it's easier to embrace this module now that I see it in this lighter Corman-esque view. I was just taking it too seriously in the beginning. And now I'm looking at this and I'm I'm also reading it after having gone through all of the Lankmar material. And I'm like, I, okay, yep light bulb. I get it now. I Okay. I will say I absolutely love the storage room in this module with all mm-hmm. of the various puzzles and handouts and potential uh, results for the players. Mm-hmm. Players and characters, I should say. And am I the only one looking at one of those artifacts that may turn out anything like the dreaded paperweight? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, uh, that struck me as well. <laughs> In flipping through it, I also noticed some of the most intricate line work from Peter Mullen that I've seen. Hmm. Seriously, he and Geogre oh, should get some, together. <laughs> Tough some gorgeous, gorgeous art in that module. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Errol Otis playtested this. I think I can mic drop on that. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, wow. I could not find him at GaryCon to save my soul. <laughs> yeah, there were people asking for an app that would track him next year. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> I'd pay 99 cents for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, this didn't get nearly enough of an accolade in the early days. And Well, I think it's because it was so early, though. I mean, what, 66.5 was Doom of the Savage Kings. This is number 73 in its fourth level. Mm-hmm. It's not you like know. a lot of games were being played at fourth level that early, and it was in by the exactly. time. Exactly. You know. Well, I mean, come on. They put out Colossus Arise around the same time, and it was level eight. And Another another adventure that really needs more playing. <laughs> it's a yeah. great adventure. <laughs> well, if I ever get to eighth needs level a little without time, forcing yeah. me to retire, I'll let you know. You know, I don't know <laughs> if you want to do it as part of a campaign. It might be better as a one-shot. <laughs> but... Uh, but Even this one, I don't know how well it would conform to, say, convention play, because it's a little meaty. You would have to pick and choose which areas you want to include. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I think with a uh, truly dedicated group of players who are really, you know, have had that incentive of, of four hours and a judge who's not afraid to wipe the walls with them, I think you could end this <laughs> in four hours. <laughs> Uh, they might not win, but I think it's four hourable. You could do this. I mean, you could almost envision this as kind of a, a similar to the jeweler who dealt in Stardust, where it's a heist adventure, right? Where it's kind of the, the, the plot it's more of, of an it. assassination, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <it's, laughs> Lee Harvey Rincewind. <laughs> but the other aspects to it in terms of the non-linearity of the travel inside the tower itself it, these are sort of very early examples of things that got developed in other adventures that came after and it, it is one of these that i think is definitely worth trying to play if you if your group gets the chance or if there's an opportunity to play it at a, a convention and somebody's running it definitely take the opportunity i mean it, it has winged apes that come flying in in the very beginning yeah scene. not even winged monkeys winged apes <laughs> Those, those, are, those are more with, dangerous with crossbows so yeah. what could go it's wrong a, it's a very light feel to it from the beginning but also just a, a fun and, and meaty adventure like you said so what was that noise the mailbag we, we get, get mail, mail? <sighs> hello keepers of mystery jen mark and bob this is a question for bob woohoo because we needed more of those. As you are known for movie recommendations, what movies would you suggest are the Appendix N of DCC RPG? I loved The Raven, which was suggested in The Raven episode. I could watch that over and over. I enjoyed hmm. reading Edgar Allan Poe in high school. I also read Bram Stoker's Dracula in high school. Then in college in a senior required fine arts course, Books and Ideas, I read Dante's Inferno and since then have read the trilogy. Also Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm sure all of these movies are well worth the view, especially in their original. And this comes from Judge Joan of Arc. Hmm, an appendix N for DCC RPG in film. I love the 80s sword and sorcery films, you know, like uh, Dragon Slayer, uh, Beastmaster from 82, The Sword and the Sorcerer, uh, Hawk the Slayer has, has brilliant stuff. Ralph Bakshi's Wizards from 1977, the animated film that kind of combines the world of DCC and MCC as polar opposites is another particular favorite of mine. But I, I got to thinking about this one, and I've got to say, especially in the age of The Order of Shanna, Hundra. This is the movie you need to watch, Judge Joan. It's a, it's a Spanish film, and it is loads better than Red Sonia. Although the, the woman in the lead was originally going to play Red Sonia, but they thought, well, she just did Hundra. It's too similar. This is a movie with just this this powerful woman warrior the actress does all but one of her own stunts and it is it's brutal it's not lighthearted it's not silly it's not chainmail bikini although there, there there is kind of a godiva scene but it makes sense in the movie uh this is this is a real woman warrior and it paints such a powerful picture you know starting with the standard trope of the village is is mostly destroyed here's the survivor going after the people responsible and it just it's it's dark it's brutal it's violent it is fantastic hundra 1983 do not miss that movie hunt hmm. it down and find it if you want to get really silly, there's your Hunter from the Future, which is now available on Blu-ray. Ask me how I know. 
and uh, <laughs> that stars the guy that played Captain America in the 70s, and they nearly killed him when they were making the movie. He was getting IVs in the morning before they would shoot because he was so dehydrated and, and beaten up. Hmm. Okay. That, that's a pretty <laughs> comprehensive list there. <laughs> Late 70s into the 80s, you can't go wrong. <laughs> Those are great suggestions. I've never heard of Hundra before. Oh, you must see Hundra. Okay, I'll check it out. What about you, Mark? The letter was addressed to you, Bob, but I will I will throw in a couple of things that just came to my mind. You mentioned Wizards, which mm-hmm. was one of the ones that it, it kind of instantly was one that my mind went to. But also in that kind of same vein, I think a lot about heavy metal, the, the animated movie oh. from, I don't know what year it was, but it's, it's, uh, it's oh definitely, God, yeah. it's definitely up there in terms of, you know, a, a movie that was very inspiring in a lot of different ways, especially with regards to technology and magic intersecting, you know, like, like that in the same vein of TV shows like Aeon Flux were part of some of that MTV generation, you know, were, were kind of inspired by that. Excalibur, the original version oh. of that 1980 movie, maybe. The look of Merlin. Yeah, the, the look of Merlin. Look. Oh, my just, God, yeah. Just, you know, the way magic is used and the way it's just very eerie, you know, throughout. And it's also just the idea of both the cyclic nature of of heroes and destiny and sort of that Elric feel. That's part of that movie, to me at least. This, I think that, that kind of stuff comes to mind because it, it's very kind of current when I was growing up, you know, and also just starting to play these games. So that kind of echoes for me. And if you haven't checked out the original Excalibur, I think that's that's worth checking mm. out. And definitely like, you know, heavy metal just for that. How weird can you make things and expand upon things? I, 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 I'm thinking animation because you put that in my mind, but I don't know if they were the original, if they were the same anime of the Boschke it wasn't the Bashi's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. It was the mm-hmm. other ones, I think. But there were maybe there were two, and I'm mixing them up. But you know, I, he did a version. I can't remember if it was a version, but the Lord of the Rings one, I think, is the one that that sort of it, it was stuck with me as a kid because it was. I think I watched it at a very young age, but it also sort of informed how I approached D and D in a lot of ways, especially you know the scourging of the goblins and the orcs uh, of the the hobbits, and they have a lot of that sort of scenery that you know you don't get in standard like cartoon animation on saturday mornings you know which was i think think of something that stuck with me like i said as a as a not afraid to rotoscope stuff yeah (laughs) exactly so joan thanks for your email you know i have a couple thoughts regarding some of the other books that you mentioned but they're not really appendix n or dcc related so hit me up on social media later okay thanks for writing in judge joan well, I think that takes us to our road crew and convention shoutouts. Oh, does it really? Does it now? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Brace yourself. Well, let's start with, here is your chance to win a copy of Matthew Goyfon's Ultra Rare Adventure Super Number One Food Tower. The adventure is specifically written to be run at North Texas RPG Con in 2015 and was only ever available there until it became available here. We offer you the opportunity to get this wonderful bit of DCC ephemera for free. Free, free, free. April's contest theme is Gonzo. Create something DCC compatible as outlandish as you want to be. Wizard, patron, spell, monster, item, location. Submit it as your entry into our drawing, and you're going to send that to the hub at sanctum.media. Or mail it to Sanctum Socorum Contest, 4915 Rattlesnake Hammock Road, number 139, Naples, Florida, 34. 
1-1-3. Coming up after Gonzo in May, we have maps. In June, we have art. So those are our contest themes as they are coming at you. And you can submit any time between now and then. Yes. Submit. <laughs> and of course, our winner will receive a copy of Super Number One Food Tower, and our runners-up will receive a random poll from the Prize Closet of Mystery. Ooh. I just like saying Prize Closet of Mystery. Hear that echo? Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> So who won for February? Our February winners are R.S. Tilton's The Huntsman Class. And our runner-up is Arimati Pipo's Ancient Hyperborean, which appeared in Sanctum issue number 32. Very cool. Congratulations. Yes, congrats to both of our winners for February. I have so much stuff that I have to mail out. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the Appendix and Book Club podcast. Judge Jeff Goad is also running a biweekly MCC campaign at the Brooklyn Strategist, and his podcast co-host, Hoy, is running DCC there. Uh, See the DCC NYC meetup group for updates on book club meetings, or find Jeff online. I wonder if DCC NYC runs MCC. Can you get MCC (laughs) from the DCC NYC? I'm just curious. Um... Sorry. Clearly you can. I just said so. <laughs> so there's MCC and DCC at NYC. Y-E-S. He. <laughs> He's such a <laughs> It's late. Oh, Mark, help. Uh, that's got to stay in there, though, right? <laughs> Maybe. M. Nixick is running DCC funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Timothy Drennan is running a bi-weekly open table Thursday night DCC game at Geek Out in Burleson, Texas. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. I believe it's on a bi-weekly basis now, and you can find Jeff online or check with the store for more details. Looking forward to April. The 27th through 29th also gives us Red River RPG Con in Shreveport, Louisiana, where Matt Gullett will be running DCC all three days. Mighty man Tim DeShane is hosting a bi-weekly DCC campaign at the Revival Brewing Company in Cranston, Rhode Island. The DCC road crew is going wild in northern Indiana. Judge Joan of Arc Troyer is running two weekly games. Every Thursday night from 6 to 10 p.m., you can find her running an open table in Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana. And starting in March, she will be at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana every Saturday, rotating on a bi-weekly basis between an established campaign and a table for younger players ages 11 to 15. So she's running two weekly games. I guess we know who's going to win the road crew <laughs> bragging rights this year. But you can only get the belt buckle once. Terribly sorry. Yeah, yeah I know. But she <laughs> might she might earn the belt buckle for 2019 and 2020 this year. My God. She's going to lap all the other judges, I think, is how it yeah. ends up. Yeah. Go, Joan. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Speaking of amazing judges, wild man Brendan LaSalle is on his Woo! way to Mepicon in Scranton, Pennsylvania, April 27th through 29th. Mario Garcia is running a regular game on Thursday evenings at Fun Again Games in Eugene, Oregon. And he's also running Hypercube of Might there for Free RPG Day. As a reminder, Chromecast, a weird fiction podcast, is covering the adventures of Fawford and the Grey Mouser throughout Season 6. As you anxiously await the release of DCC Lankmar, like the rest of us, give these shows a listen. 
And that's thecromcast.blogspot.com. Chris Laricella is running DCC at Bell Book and Comic in Dayton, Ohio on April 7th and will repeat every three to four weeks depending on everyone's schedules. Look for the guy in the DCC shirt. Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. I want to go to the Beer Temple. <laughs> I want to make that cleric. I just don't want disapproval after a couple pitchers. Oh, and you know that'll happen. Uh, Michael Hearn is running an open game for Boss. That's better opportunities for single service members on base at Fort Gordon, Georgia on April 7th. As a reminder, Boss is for active guard and reserve single service members, single parents, and the geographically dispersed of all military branches, including foreign service members. Oh, that's neat. It's very cool. Kingdom Con in San Diego is April 19th through 22nd. Bill Meyer will be there running five games. Three DCC, one MCC, and one Age of Cthulhu. Rock on. Yeah. North Texas RPG Con, filled with DCC goodness, is June 7th through 10th, fast approaching. And shortly after that is June 16th, the holiday of our people, Free RPG Day. And looking way ahead, make plans for Gen Con, August 2nd through 5th where there will be literally hundreds of DCC and MCC games uh, being presented, as well as the return of the DCC Open Tournament. Where deadly Ms. Mundy can destroy more souls. Yay! <laughs> well, want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly easing, in addition to the contest going through June? Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. Zines, modules, and even some great appendix in. You can submit your creations to us at thehub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Are you running road crew games? Drop us a line to let us know. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you have submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as last year's free RPG Day companion and other secret benefits. We're also working on some automation for recurring events. Again, that's the hub at sanctum.media. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to sanctum.media and click on the community events link. Be sure to scroll all the way down for a full venue and judge information. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, drop us an email like Judge Joan, comment on the podcast, chime in on our G Plus page, or help us by posting a review on iTunes. They like us. They really like us. (laughs) Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. Be sure to visit us on Google Plus, mention us on Facebook, Ignore us on Ello? Yes, please. Well, (laughs) we hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Good night, guys. Good night, everybody. You have been listening to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast. Join us again in May when the Sanctum Socorum once again hosts Movie Night with the 1983 film Hundra, starring Lorene Landon.
I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the Dark Master. Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey, guys. Can I play? Sure! Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh, cool! I summoned a demon horde! 